Welcome to another episode of E-Commerce on Tap, brought to you by Sourceify. I'm your host, Nathan Resnick. Please like and subscribe. We're super excited for today's guest, and here we go. Today we have one of my all-time favorite people in e-commerce, Anthony Chen. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Excited to be here. Can I call you by like your cool nickname, AC? Because I feel like that is, so, I don't know, it's just obviously your abbreviation, but like AC is, sounds cool. Listen, man, it's always weird when people call me Anthony because like all my friends call me AC, so you should definitely just okay. call me AC. All right, AC. AC and I go back, I'm trying to think, probably six years ago when I was starting Sourceify. We were just going through YC. And for those that don't know, AC was the first employee at Flexport. We took them from basically just where no one knew about it to a multi-billion dollar business, which is just incredible. And I want to jump back to that point because we originally met through Y Combinator. And so I want to learn just briefly about the early days of Flexport. There's so many people in the e-commerce world obviously know about Flexport, but was the idea for Flexport what it became? Yeah, I think Flexport, we started out originally as like a digital customs brokerage for the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And we very much saw that as like our beachhead, our Trojan horse into the e-commerce and the logistics space, the supply chain space. And for the majority of our YC tenure, like we were really just focused on doing customs brokerage, really outdated, very broken, and a ton of customers, especially e-commerce customers had issues with it and they didn't know what was going on and they kept finding us in the midnight hour. And so as per YC philosophy, we did a lot of things that didn't scale. We started experimenting with providing services downstream with like trucking, DO, you know, paying warehouses. And then going upstream and trying to figure out how we can manage and mitigate some of the risks and issues that a lot of our customers had. And it was super stressful, really tenuous in the first two quarters of, of our life. That YC mentality of doing things that didn't scale helped us really articulate what are the pain points that our customers have. And consequently, what are the pain points that we have uh, doing digital customs brokerage for them? And because of that, we were able to think through, all right, listen, this sucks. It sucks for us. It sucks for them. And a lot of them, their working capital is stuck in these shipments. So obviously they're stressed out. Obviously they're trying to get things done and they're used to not getting things done. So for us, we asked ourselves, what could we do to create a 10 X lever, right? How could we make this experience 10 X better? Not just for ourselves, but obviously for our clients. In the summer of 2014, we shifted from that pure play digital customs brokerage to providing freight forwarding services. That way we could actually create a managed service and system from the beginning of every single logistics transaction, rather than just using our beachhead at customs as of the window. And so I think in summer of 2014, we pivoted, if you will, or expanded our offerings to do freight forwarding. And ever since then, the business model was very concentrated and focused on that managed service that allowed us right. to create an end-to-end -end experience for all of our customers. And that was, I remember our very first shipment, it just rocketed. Because I think one of our first transactions was equivalent to six months of customs brokerage work. And wow. I remember Ryan and I looked at each other and we're just like, wow, this is the right business to be in and we can do it even better. Makes a lot of sense. And now Flexport is, I think, one of the most known e-commerce oriented freight forwarders in the world. It's just such a huge unlock. And I can imagine those numbers and the magnitude that Flexport's revenue is at just based on the container rates that we saw the past two years. Did you ever think, AC, that container rates would be like eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 from Asia? <laughs> Were we living in a, just a new world that was- It was definitely insane. And I think the carriers, the ocean carriers took advantage of it as much as they could, right? They've mm -hmm. been having trouble over the past 10 years. You probably noticed and saw this, but a lot of them shut down or got acquired but there was an oversupply of ships effectively in the space. And so when they saw the COVID supply chain issues, they took full advantage of that. And with all of the excess demand that was happening, it created the perfect Goldilocks scenario for a lot of these carriers to 
flex up and try to meet demand where their prices were obviously very beneficial. Never in my, my six plus years of just pure freight forwarding experience did I think that prices for containers would ever go up to 10x used to be pre-COVID. But I think it just speaks to supply and demand mechanics. And right, right now, I think as of last month, I think container rates have almost normalized back down to pre almost pre-COVID levels. That's yeah. than any economist expected. Yeah, I think that's what we've seen as well. There was a point where we were paying like 20K for a container a year and a half, two years ago, and now it's back down to where it's at, where it was, which is great. But from the e-commerce side, how does that even affect the e-commerce business when container rates go from two or 4K to 18 or 20? It's like insane because they're still only able to fit the same amount of products in that container. And so their margins get crunched. Do they charge their customers more? What do they do? And I think... Just being an e-commerce founder the past like three years has been absolutely insane. It's been crazy. It's completely changed the landscape. And I'm glad that shipping rates are normalized right now. And we have a very interesting interest rate environment right now with inflation and interest rates mm -hmm. the way that they are. But the past three years exceptionally have been so challenging for e-commerce founders. Even during that time, I launched a couple of different brands as well. And it just, the margin profile of your business get completely eviscerated, right? Mm -hmm. We were working with like ultra high margin products and SKUs, you know, your landed costs for your products just got destroyed, whether you're shipping right. ocean or air, right? When ocean freight increases 10X, that margin buffer that you have for products that you typically ship on ocean, they're gone. Now you don't have any margin to do the traditional performance marketing anymore. You're really thin on what you can do for free shipping and everything else because it adds up. Right, the right. unit cost is just a completely different profile. And I think luckily for some higher margin products, maybe they can eat into it for a little bit, but I think the scarcity of containers and the volatility was just too much. And so you saw a lot of folks just trying to decrease order or trying to get as much squeezed into containers as possible. Yeah, it's a crazy environment. I want to dive into you at Hype Asia and this kind of conglomerate of brands that you're a part of. First off, for the audience, what is Hype Asia? And then what did you do? Yeah, so Hype Asia was basically an incubator for D2C e-commerce brands, right? It was a team of entrepreneurs and founders and operators that were the former leads, GMs of big unicorn companies like Airbnb, WeWork, and Uber. And with our network, what we saw was we had the best of both worlds, right? We had the China side manufacturing and logistics connections. And then we, all had, we also had the US side branding, customer network, and playbooks. And so the idea was to create this conglomerate, if you will, or incubator of D2C e-commerce ideas where we had an unfair advantage on both the supply and the demand side. Mm -hmm. On the supply side, it was being able to work with PE shops or manufacturing owners, like top 10 manufacturers, and working with them to figure out how they could get a seat at the table in the e-commerce game. I think in the past five, 10 years, what we saw was a lot of factory owners or their progeny, their, the next generation of factory owners, were starting to realize that you can't white glove or you can't white label your product and service forever. You're leaving a lot of right. margin at the table. And so we saw that sentiment at the hype and we wanted to work with those owners and businesses to figure out how they could get to see the table and do it with us in a win-win way. So the brands that we launched, we usually had an in at a top five, top 10 company. And as an example, one of the brands that we work with is one of the top 10 textile manufacturers in the world with clients listed as like American Eagle, Seven for All Mankind, wow. and so on, and working with them to create a brand that they could be proud of. Makes a lot of sense. And what do you think of that trend? Because I know every Amazon, Shopify oriented brand has always thought about in the back of their head, well, what if my factory just like copied my products and then put a different brand on my products and started competing with me? Obviously they have a better margin. Yeah, I think it's a super good question. I guess the good and bad news is, iOS 14 and other changes happened within the Apple and Facebook ecosystems in the past two years that also shifted the dynamics of how easy it is to do performance marketing, 
right? I think paid ads is not as lucrative as it used to be. And so I think the very cost-effective copy-paste things that we probably saw pre-COVID, they are not as lucrative today as they used to be. And so you see a lot of copycats, a lot of gurus out there that are trying to playbook. And I think folks are realizing, holy crap, it's way more expensive than it used to be. You can't get the same success five years ago today. And so instead, I think it's really about creating the right brand, the right narrative, and telling stories that actually resonate with your product and your customers. And that's a lot harder to copy paste. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I think that's what you're seeing with a lot of aggregators like Open Store and these other kind of Shopify aggregators that are now, I think, facing a challenge, like you said, with iOS 14 in terms of how do you scale traffic across so many different avenues and then how do you manage so many different brands at one time? I feel like it's even harder to aggregate in the Shopify ecosystem compared to the Amazon ecosystem. And now we, as we've seen with Thrasio and all the big Amazon aggregators, it still is really hard to continue to scale and grow Amazon brands, especially when you're running like a few hundred different brands under one roof. And I think they're in a position where they got to keep paying their debt that they've raised to acquire these brands. And now they're in such a kind of tight position, if you will, trying to figure out how to continue to grow and maintain the brands that they own and continue to make debt payments basically. So what's your take on the aggregator space really? I think the aggregator space is super interesting. I think the financial engineering aspect of it makes a ton of sense, right? On paper, on these social models, oh, wow, like we can aggregate, we can cut, cut costs on like some of the supply side, whether that's through sourcing or accounting or financing or some other level of logistics. But I think, again, there's the perfect combination of the perfect storm of things that people didn't expect to happen, one of which was the ridiculously high supply chain costs across the board mm -hmm. for the past two, three years. Now that it's right. cooling, that maybe there's an opportunity for a lot of these aggregators to still find that silver lining, despite the debt payments that they've had to make for the past two, three years. Right. But I think my biggest thesis against aggregators is synergies is not just a line item that bankers can write down in a financial model. Synergy right. actually takes a lot of time. And I think to aggregate 40, 50, 100 different businesses and just say, hey, we'll find synergies across all of these supply chains, it's not a trivial problem. Right. Supply chains can be so different. There might not be as many obvious synergies as you think, especially if you know a lot of the brands that they acquired didn't have good documentation or a strong SOP. And the thesis being, I think at some point, once a lot of these aggregators already finished buying the cream of the crop, the obvious winners, if they have to continue making acquisitions, I think they won't find deals that are as good and probably will come to the thesis or conclusion later of now that we have a portfolio of 50 or so companies, let's do the pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. What was working really well for these teams and companies and how can we use that pattern to create our own formula for brands? Themselves build. Yeah. yeah, I want to touch on just pattern recognition because I think it's, it's a great thesis and at Hype Asia, you saw so many different brands and brought different brands to market. From a marketing side, if you could touch on like in this ecosystem, it is so hard to drive traffic and to continue to grow. And so I'm curious, was there any pattern recognition you saw across various brands that like actually still work in this environment? Was it some sort of TikTok strategy? Was it like, I, I don't know. It's just a, like so many people are wondering like, what's like the hidden unlock to growing in this environment where you can't just launch Facebook and Instagram ads and scale. You've got to really be creative with your marketing funnel. Yeah, I think you can still do phenomenal things with Facebook and Google. Um, I've seen brands do extraordinary things, but I think the common pattern recognition that I see with brands that do really well with go-to-market and growth are the brands that abide by one simple rule, which is always be experimenting. One brand that I really love and investor and advisor for is a company called Emmy Eats or Emmy Ramen. They make mm -hmm. protein-based ramen. And every month they'll do an investor update, but like you'll see, like they're experimenting across every single channel possible. I think they 
the, the secret unlock is the very obvious unlock for them, right? Which is focus on community, focus on right. brand. There's no shortcuts. And I think a lot of companies, and I'm guilty of this too, which is cool, let's just throw gasoline on the fire and then right. make it work. But I think a lot of those gains are very transient. And unless right. the foundational brand or foundational community is like really strong, then just pouring gasoline on the fire won't be enough to keep the fire going. And I think right. for companies like Emmy, brands like Emmy, where they really focus on that community, there's no hacks, there's no shortcuts. You got to be tried and true to your customers, to your brand. That experimentation, totally. the really raw, organic type of content and engagement that they have on TikTok, mm-hmm. I think has been kind of a create that vibe, right? Yeah. That message for them. I feel like there's such a bridge right now between community and commerce and creators and commerce, right? Like you saw Mr. Beast doing so much with Feastables and all of his brands. It's just, it makes sense, right? Because you're using your own audience and your own community to sell and distribute a product that, that they're, that they want. And they're doing so with someone that they really trust because you've built an audience over podcasting or video or social media, whatever it may be. And I think it's just such a, unique trend that we're seeing. Do you think this is at its peak or do you think the kind of community creator commerce angle is just? I think it's just starting, honestly. I think we started seeing some of these trends like two two years ago or three years ago with like live commerce and social commerce in Asia. And I think some of them were making their way to like Western Europe or even the US. Mm-hmm. In the past two years or so, with the advent of the creator economy or Web3, there's this philosophy that we want to be part of something. We want to not only build and buy, but we want to build, buy and own. How right. do you do that? And the, I think the creator economy really provides this way for if you're a fan of a particular brand to help operate within that brand, right? Knowing who the creators are, who the brand owners are makes a difference. That's the difference between a Mr. Beastables and yep. another random chocolate brand out there. Cause like people are not just resonating with the product itself, but the brand, the message, the image. And I bought, I think 10, pa- 10 packs of Feastables. No, you did. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Beast's brand is on point. The way that right. he like, finds his products is on point. Yeah. And I bought it because I wanted to be part of that movement. I wanted to support the cause. Mm-hmm. I know what's actually going on behind the brand. And I think that's why we're starting to see so many more creators be right. upfront and open about what they're doing, who they are, what their stories are. And I think right. brands that are less, that are more product driven and less founder driven, I think mm-hmm. are a little bit of unfair advantage because of the Got it. Makes sense. Hey, see, I always ask guests the same last question, and it's what's one question that you wish I asked that I did not ask, and then I have you answer it. So do you have a question that you that you want to ask that you want to answer? I'm curious. And you see so many startups, you know so much about e-commerce, you've been in this field for so long. Is there a question that... Man, there's so many questions. This is a good question. I think one question that I always like getting asked is, what are you most proud of? That's uh, awesome. And I think to answer that question doesn't necessarily resonate with e-commerce specifically, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is the work that we did at Flexport in the early days. It was able to set a lot of the foundational work for all the engineers, product people, customers later on, years later. And one of the things that I did that I'm really proud of there is I was able to help contribute and build automated action item system for Flexport. And it basically helped to automate different parts of the supply chain so that our team can do things even faster than competitors can. That's awesome. I was really proud of that because we were able to get a patent for it. And also because the exercise is, I think, how I think about building businesses in general, which is looking at, you know, the fundamental process and principles of what is the problem that you're trying to solve, break it apart into its atomic parts, and then rebuild with the outcomes in mind. Right. Using that system or using that playbook, you can create phenomenal software. And I think whether you're running a logistics and supply chain company or an e-commerce company, that's probably an exercise that you should do periodically with your team, with your customers to figure out where are your gaps, where are your holes, and how can you build a way healthier and more scalable business.
That's awesome. That's awesome. AC, thank you so much for coming on e-commerce on tap. If people want to get in touch, where can they reach you? And also what are you looking for right now? Who should get in touch? Get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love chatting with other founders and entrepreneurs. And right now I'm always looking to figure out if there are interesting e-commerce or SaaS businesses that need to figure out unlocks all about awesome. that unlocks. There we go. That's the key unlock. Thanks again, AC. Appreciate you coming on e-commerce on tap. Yeah. Happy to do it. Thanks Nathan. Thank you for listening to e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. If you could like and subscribe, we'd greatly appreciate it. And please keep an eye out for our next episode.